The following podcast is sponsored by Financial Sense Wealth Management. To learn more about our investment services, go to financialsense.com or give us a call at 888-486-3939. President Putin has announced the annexation of four regions of Ukraine that are controlled by Russian forces in the biggest seizure of territory in Europe since the Second World War. The European Union's top diplomat said a deliberate attack likely caused the leak from the Nord Stream pipelines in the Baltic Sea. The leaks raising concerns as Europe faces a growing energy crisis. As we come on the air tonight, Ian has regained hurricane strength as it moves into the Atlantic, taking aim at Georgia and the Carolinas. But what it left behind here in Florida is unimaginable in scale and historic in reach. The president saying tonight this could be the deadliest hurricane in Florida's history. The Bank of England announced today it will buy unlimited quantities of government bonds at a, quote, urgent pace. Action carried out on, quote, whatever scale is necessary to ease investor concerns. This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, here's the Financial Sense News Team. Well, losses in the major indexes deepened during the third quarter as hopes faded that monetary policy would fade. Instead, the Fed became more resolute in its fight against inflation, raising the Fed funds rate in September by three quarters of a point for the third consecutive month. We've gone from zero on the Fed's funds rate in January to a projected year-end rate of four and a half what has been the most aggressive Fed rate-raising cycle in three decades. Higher interest rates are wreaking havoc around the globe as the U.S. dollar rises to levels not seen in decades, forcing countries to pay more for oil, which is denominated in U.S. dollars. It is also raising the government's deficit. The short-term T-bills roll over at much higher interest rates. Experts now believe the U.S. is headed for a hard landing, with possible government, institutional, and individual bankruptcies lying ahead of us. The unemployment rate is projected to hit 5% next year, as millions of more Americans will be thrown out of work. Hi, everyone. I'm Jim Paplava, and welcome to the Financial Sense News Hour. My technician this week is Ari Wald from Oppenheimer. Ari thinks we could be headed towards a strong fourth quarter rally with a bet on big cap value stocks. Ari will be followed by Mike McClone, who's head commodity strategist at Bloomberg Markets. Mike is still bullish on gold and bearish on oil. Then Chris Paplava and Chris Sheridan will be here with another edition of Smart Macro. Also, be sure to check my latest article at Financial Sense, why green energy will continue to power the commodity boom. You can find that at financialsense.com. Let's find out the stories moving the markets this week with Ryan Paplava. At the center of this week's volatility was the aftermath of the United Kingdom's announcement last week to cut taxes by their Prime Minister, Liz Truss, while central banks are trying to apply the brakes on high inflation. This caused a crisis in credibility and confidence, setting the British pound lower and a spike in the UK government bond yields. These fluctuations in turn have caused turmoil in the financial markets as large institutional investors adjust hedges, answer margin calls, and liquidate other assets to shore up their positions with collateral. It was thought that the Bank of England would intervene early in the week, but Monday the Bank of England said that a full assessment wouldn't occur until its next scheduled meeting, which wouldn't be until November 3rd. Basically, sorry, we're busy. While investors have a way of helping central banks understand urgency, the British pound hit an all-time low against the dollar this week. The UK 10-year gilt hit a high of around 4.5% before the bank finally intervened on Wednesday, stating it would carry out temporary purchases from September 28th through October 14th to restore orderly market conditions. A week ago, the same bond was yielding less than 3.5%. So there you have it. Central bank intervention this week in UK bonds as a result of the announced fiscal expansion policy by its government in the UK. Our own markets also were influenced by the turmoil with stocks falling a third week and the 10-year treasury yield breaking 4% briefly before the Bank of England's intervention brought down our yields as well from Wednesday. In other news this week, more inflation data. 
Friday news hit that the Eurozone's year-over-year consumer price index figure hit a record, up 10%. So here we are, double digits. On the same day, Friday, we got the Fed's preferred inflation measure, the PCE price index. It was up 0.3% for the headline figure and up 0.6% for the core, which excludes food and energy. Now, year-over-year, the PCE price index was up 6.2% versus 6.4%, so down uh, from its July reading. But the core was up 4.9% versus 4.7% in July. Interestingly, the CME FedWatch tool tracking the, the probabilities of Fed hikes based on Fed futures contracts has seen a drop in its probability of another 75 basis point hike from 72.9% a week ago, now down to around 53% last I checked. There was plenty of commentary from Fed officials all week. Uh, Fed Dove Chicago President Evans, not a voter, said he's nervous the Fed is moving too much too quickly adding he's cautiously optimistic the U.S. can avoid a recession. That's the first time I've heard anyone concerned about the pace of increases. Now, the rest were hawkish, and these comments were coming from Mester, a voter this year who said rates will be restrictive for longer to fight inflation and keep it down. Bullard, a voter, just reiterated inflation is a problem and the credibility of their policy of inflation targeting is at risk. Kashkari, a voter next year, said the Fed is united to bring down inflation at an appropriately aggressive pace. Thursday, post the strong unemployment claims number, which came in below 200,000, was Fed President Mester again this week, who said the Fed is not yet in restrictive territory. Together with the low unemployment claims and her comments, these sent stocks lower to erase all the gains made Wednesday after the Bank of England's intervention brought down rates and strengthened the pound. Now, geopolitical worries were also refreshed this week. Putin Friday announced the annexation of four Ukraine territories, and he followed it up that there will be a Russian territories forever, guarded by the use of nuclear weapons if necessary. They also announced a draft to shore up its forces to help reinforce their plans, um, but it's unclear yet how the West and Europe will respond to these actions. At the company news level, there were some concerning announcements. Bloomberg early in the week reported Apple is pulling back on its plan to increase production of its iPhone 14 above its 90 million units target due to weaker than expected demand. Nike had earnings and reported a huge inventory build of 44% year over year and gross margin pressures likely to help alleviate that inventory build. Micron was able to close positive despite a horrible day in stocks after reporting better than expected earnings and an earnings warning for next quarter. CarMax announced recession concerns and a disappointing quarter. And finally, casino stocks got an uptick early in the week on the announcement China will allow Macau tour groups for the first time in three years. That's it for this week's wrap up with Bank of England intervention, more inflationary data, geopolitical worry refresh, and inventory builds and warnings from large companies. Up next, this week's technician, Ari Wald. Here's what we do know. So we know that the pressure dropped in the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines. It looks like it was an act of sabotage um, and to where they're not working. They're probably not going to be working anymore, or at least going forward. Nord Stream 2 was this pipeline that was supposed to increase capacity for especially Germany, but other European countries to import natural gas from Russia. It never really got to the point where it was getting flicked on. It got very, very close, and it was held up by a bunch of different things in German politics, European politics. The U.S. didn't want the European Union to go forward with Nord Stream 2. Famously, both the Trump administration and the Biden administration pushed the EU not to move forward with Nord Stream 2. But this act of sabotage, whatever it was, if your goal was to make sure that Europe didn't blink as we get into the winter, taking Nord Stream 1 offline would be something that you would want to do. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to FinancialSense.com and hit the subscribe button. At Financial Sense Wealth Management, we are committed to helping you build, maintain, and preserve your wealth. Contact us today to find out about our comprehensive financial planning and asset management services. Whether you're planning for retirement, taxes, putting together an estate plan, or need assistance in managing a 401k, Financial Sense Wealth Management is here to help. Give us a call to speak with one of our certified financial planners or wealth advisors at 888 888- 
486-3939 or go to financialsense.com and hit where it says contact us. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Well, volatility has increased. It's almost become a daily occurrence, whether it's the stock market, the bond market, or commodities. Where is all this heading? Will the Fed eventually pivot? Let's find out. Joining us from Oppenheimer is Ari Wald. And Ari, uh, we were just talking before we went on the air. When you look at all the sectors within the S&P, everything literally is broken down. The bond market has broken down. It's like there's nowhere to hide. I'd like to get your thoughts. Jim, that's a great way to describe market conditions right now. Most Areas of the equity market are trending lower, and I would define that as capitulation. I think what's most notable is that only 12% of stocks on the New York Stock Exchange are currently above their 200-day average. So again, as you described it, there is little place to hide. If you look back historically, though, typically when you get those types of conditions and those types of sell-offs, it has offered a long-term opportunity for the long-term investor. But I think it's very important to know your time horizon. And what we're trying to do here is balance near-term risks with what we do see as long-term rewards, understanding it's difficult to time market lows, and near-term trading conditions could get worse before they get better. You know what's interesting, Ari? We started out the year with uh, the Fed funds rate at zero. And now it looks like, if we believe what Powell is telling us, we could end up the year at four and a half. I have not seen this kind of aggressive rate raising cycle. Probably I'd have to go back to 1994 when Greenspan doubled the Fed funds rate from three to 6%. What's interesting is as interest rates have continued to rise. We have seen a divergence, though, where commodity prices and other measures of inflation have started to move lower. So what we are seeing is it does appear that the Fed's commitment to fight inflation appears to be pressuring markets more than the actual threat of inflation. And along with 1994, you know, this does make aggressive central bank tightening between 1978 and 1980 a potential analog to current conditions as well. The equity market was able to grind higher through that period. The comparison, and I suppose the periods that they want to avoid, were the extended down cycles in 1968 and 1973 when policy was uh, arguably cut too quickly. And those inflationary pressures uh, came back to a a larger degree later on and continue to pressure risk. You know, as you look forward, whether you're looking at energy and you look at the massive amount of spending that is occurring in Washington, what factors, uh, you know, begin to stop inflation? In other words, if we're going to keep pushing and shoving money into the economy, it's kind of hard to see how inflation stops. Well, I, I think the you know, higher interest rates is the, the first step towards curbing those pressures. And I think given the action in commodity prices and what we're seeing, and even the year-over-year CPI number having coming down in recent months, uh, I think they're, they're making steps towards seeing that turn in inflation. And so again, it does appear to be that the market is grappling with the medicine which is tighter policy rather than the actual virus. That it, I guess we're of the view that it, it seems that the the longer term virus is 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 you know might be peaking here. Uh, but you know they're both bearish scenarios. Obviously, there's the argument of whether it's too much medicine over too short of a period of time. But I'd like to see that this Fed induced volatility could potentially be healthier for the market's longer term rise than, say, if inflation were to start creeping higher again over the coming quarters. 
Ari, what about the issue that uh, as high as energy prices have been here in the U.S., it's worse overseas in Europe or even Japan, because unlike us, oil is denominated in dollars. So if their currencies, I mean, take a look what happened to the pound, the euro, and the yen. As they pay for oil, they're buying that oil with dollars and their own currencies are depreciating. So those prices are even higher for foreign markets overseas for major countries. That's a great point. You know, the surge in the dollar has been such a key market driver here, which has pressured commodity prices and pressured overseas markets by a much larger degree as well, whether we're looking at them in either dollar-denominated terms or local currency terms. It gets back to our view that why the U.S. remains a more attractive uh, place for equity exposure than world equities, why we continue to emphasize U.S. over world, why we continue to use world as a near-term hedge that uh, of the view that world equities are, are likely to pressure markets by a more notable degree, especially in a more uh, bearish scenario uh, looking forward. And why we probably need to see some dollar stability here for the equity markets to find their footing. Uh, where are the few, it's, it's not necessarily dollar strength or dollar weakness, but the pace of the dollar. And I, and I, I think generally intermarket stability is, would be a welcome sign for equity markets, whether it's in the currency or fixed, in, or fixed income markets. Uh, and until we see that uh, over the near term, at least, uh, equity markets could remain under pressure. Yeah, I'm just thinking of the impact on corporate earnings, because if we take a look at the big uh, stocks and the S&P 500, 40% of their sales are overseas. So with the dollar rising as much as it has, that has to impact earnings, number one. And number two, Ari, we've got an economic slowdown. So slower growth means slower sales, less profits. Yeah, that's a you know, the textbook way of looking at the dollar's relationship to equity markets and the areas that would you would think would be most likely impacted by a strong dollar, that they would be a headwind for these multinational companies. The charts do tell a different story. Uh, much of the last 30 years, we've seen dollar strength actually correlated to large cap leadership. The late 1990s, a great example of that where you had a strong dollar and, and, and large cap tech outperforming against that backdrop, where we've actually seen uh, these reflationary themes come under more pressure during these periods of a rising dollar. And the argument being made that if you were going to see uh, th- that a weaker dollar would actually help the reflationary ideas start to act a little bit better uh, versus uh, the large cap tech ideas which have tended to find a scarcity premium in a low growth backdrop. So as you look at this, uh, as we talked about, very few areas that are safe. We've got the stock market down, the bond market down, commodity markets down. I want to go back to something we saw on Wednesday, and I'd like to get your thoughts on it, where we saw the 10-year yield jump to, I think it was 405 And then after the Bank of England announced they were initiating QE, it dropped almost three and three quarters. I mean, people don't realize how big of a move that is in the bond market. It would be like, you know, a thousand point move in the Dow. That was and through and equities rallied as rates moved lower during that period, which gets into our our what is our top concern, which has been the rise in rates. This is which has pressured markets and risk most notably this year, in our view that likely need to see a top in rates to coincide with a a bottom in the equity market. Was that the start of a top is what we is the would be the bullish argument. Was that a blow off top in rates? I think it's too early to make that call that there's more downside and that I'd like to see in interest rates before believing that that was a blow off top. The trend is still higher. I think for starters for the tenure and inability to hold the three and a half percent level, which was the June high, that would argue for potential failed breakout, and I think that would be a welcome sign for equities. It would create that again that intermarket stability that I think uh, is required for the equity market to start to turn. 
And so, and, and that gets into this balancing act, balancing these near-term risks that the equity markets are de- are still pointed lower. Seasonals are a headwind for a couple more weeks. Volatility is heightened, and rising rates are continue to pressure markets. Uh, with what we see as long-term reward, that our indicators are washed out and at levels that have historically marked the best opportunities for the long-term investor. We'd also argue that the downturn is very consistent with a bear cycle and a larger secular advance. And the the market is following its midterm year script closely as well, which does argue for better returns in the fourth quarter. You know, I was just going to bring that up because typically September, October have been historically weak months for the markets. You see, we've seen corrections in this period, but also as you get into the end of October to the end of the year is a very strong finish leading into January. What would you look as the key pivot point to tell you that's going to happen? Seasonals are secondary confirmation for us. We're not going to make recommendations on seasonals alone, but when they corroborate our indicators, it does add to our conviction. Uh, Typically, you will see markets start to turn around that mid-October point. We found that October tends to be a bear market killer. More major market lows have occurred in October than any other month uh, going back to 1932. Our indicators are washed out. There's a contrarian fuel for that turn. And what we're going to be looking for are signs that selling intensities are becoming less bad. We're going to be looking for bullish divergences into this potential October low point. I think what is encouraging here is while the market is, again, pushing into its June lows, the S&P 500, we are seeing high-yield credit spreads remaining firm. They aren't as wide as they were in June. We're seeing some signs that the VIX has shown lesser downside intensity than making a series of lower highs, and that bottom-up trends are becoming less correlated, too. Uh, So the setup is there for the turn, for this October turn. Now we actually have to see it. So given that this could become a possibility, where would you see the breakouts? In other words, if you were to place money to, to, let's say, ride this rally, where would you be putting it? We found that at market turning points, you typically get a rotation into the what was the bear cycle's previous laggards. And if you look at this downturn, it's uh, the main culprit has been growth. I don't think it's going to be the same growth rally that we've seen in recent years. I think there's going to be pockets of growth that are going to do better than others. As I think now that rates are seem to be reversing longer-term trends going back to the early 80s, I think there's going to be pockets of value that do better looking forward as well. Within the growth space, we bucket it by capitalization. And I think more of the mid to large cap growth stocks are still what we would call structurally sound. They held key support levels, prior breakout points from the fourth quarter of 2020, that I think that they are better positioned to turn higher again and see their longer term uptrends resume. We'd be more cautious with the the smaller cap subset of growth, which had both a a very sharp rise into those prior peaks. That's where we saw more bubble-like behavior and have also been damaged and crashed by a more certain degree. We think that's the, pop, the, the side of growth that could requ- that's going to require much more time measured in quarters and even years to stabilize. So for, uh, to answer your question specifically, Jim, we'd be looking at large and mid-cap growth as an attractive recovery idea. What assumptions does Wall Street hold, do you think, that may not play out? In other words, up till Jackson Hole, Wall Street was thinking, well, they'll keep raising, but at some point they're going to pivot. You know, Powell abandoned his speech, went uh, off the cuff and basically says, we're going to do whatever it takes to bring this down, which Wall Street wasn't expecting. Is there anything that Wall Street is assuming now that may not play out? I think if you look at the sentiment polls, uh, our, our feel is that the market is being has been priced for recession, and I think is being priced for these very downbeat scenarios that whether by some mix of inflation getting out of control through the first half of the year to now the Fed being too late in their tightening policy, uh, that uh, I think the position of the market is set up to um, 
be to the upside where the pain trade could be higher if we start to get some less bad news or if, if Wall Street sees that overall market conditions aren't as dour as they seemingly are right now. That, you know, it's very easy for the market to be down 25% from its peak, hitting new lows to see these very bearish arguments start to come out where we can only be, you know, halfway through this. And I think the, the the surprise could therefore come to the upside, given what we're seeing in our sentiment work, our OPCO bullish composite only showing 8% bullishness based on investor survey polls. That's marking the most pessimism in our work since March of 2009, which of course reminds us of the saying, the time to buy is when there's blood in the street. As we close, if our listeners would like to follow the work that you guys do at Oppenheimer, how could they do so? Well, they could follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Ari Wald, or they can reach out to their closest Oppenheimer uh, sales representative. Thanks for coming on the program. Look forward to talking to you once again. Have a great rest of the year. Thank you, Jim. You as well. Talk soon. Bye-bye. We spent 50 years trying to create world peace, and we got a year and a half of people just trying to tear everything apart. The computer's projecting we have serious risk of all-out international world war, probably in 2023 starting. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to FinancialSense.com and hit the subscribe button. Give Financial Sense Wealth Management a call today at 888-486-3939. Let us work together to help you get on the path to success. Financial Sense Wealth Management has been named as one of the top investment advisory firms in the U.S. by the Financial Times. Let us put our financial expertise to work for you. Call now at 888-486-3939 or email grow at financialsense.com. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Joining us on the program is Mike McGlone. He's Senior Commodity Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Mike, what's your take on oil prices here now and after the election? Lower. At least for now, it looks to me like crude is going to continue to mean revert towards $50 a barrel. This has been my point I've been pointing out for a little bit too long. Um, and partly the reason is what crude oil did, the damage it's done partly to the global economic, which was expansion, but it also tilted central banks into a much more aggressive inflation stance. And that's typically what crude oil does. So what typically what crude oil does is it pumps and it dumps. So I view crude oil this year was the last gas, was a gas, uh, just a bounce with an enduring bear market based on what crude oil typically does. It has very supply elastic. And the most significant thing that's happened to crude oil in the last 10 years is the U.S. and Canada becoming energy independent and a net exporter. That's what's pressured, a key thing that's pressured crude oil prices. And that process is accelerating, not because just the supply, most only supply, but actually U.S. and Canada, I use include Canada because all the supply are there. Consumption actually peaked about almost 20 years ago, 2005. Maybe a little bit later, and jumped up a little bit in 2018. But that's a key fact, what's happening in crude oil. But now we have this unique confluence events where the world's tilting towards a recession. The war's accelerating. The war spiked crude oil prices initially. It's creating a major stress, a crisis in Europe, which is tilting everybody towards recession. And now the major forces of Elasticity supply are kicking in. You're actually seeing it now. Um, U.S. unleaded gas demand has turned over. It's dropping at a, a higher velocity in 2008. It's actually very similar to first quarter 2020 when we had the crisis, the lockdowns. So I see crude oil continuing to head lower, and I think it's unlikely to go higher. Now we're going to get spikes. I can't predict what's going to happen politically, particularly potentially if Mr. Putin goes nuclear. But if we continue to do what we're doing, which I fully expect, and that is the great reversion of 2022, which includes the stock market, crude oil is still too expensive. And right now, about $78 a barrel, still up 3% in the year. I fully expect it to fall copper, which is down about 24% in the year. Mike, the Russians are talking about reducing production. OPEC is following short. And then the Biden administration is talking about replenishing the SPR. What an impact will that have on oil, in your opinion? 
So the key thing to remember about the SPR is it's become somewhat redundant. It's not necessary for a country that has a, is a major net exporter of liquid fuels and crude oil. Now, it's really important when you have issues like hurricanes hitting the Gulf. Um, you need it for that. But the reason for the SBR, which came out of the 70s, I was pumping gas in 1979 when the price went over a buck. We had it sell in a half a gallon. Back then, U.S. was the largest net importer. Now a net exporter, including the largest of LNG, it's just not as necessary anymore. Yes, it's become somewhat political. Massive releases of the SBRs pushed down prices. But and it, it will be replenished. But it's also part of prudent, prudent um Inventory management, Jim, this is one thing I enjoy pointing out to people. When you hold a big chunk of inventory, now I know SPR is not about managing inventory, it's about protecting things, but and things are in backwardation, means you can sell the cash market and buy further out in the futures at a discount and keep that same amount in there on paper and just take delivery, you make a lot of money. That's basically what happens in backwardation. That's what's happened this year. So they will be replenishing, but I fully expect that the statistic that I want to leave you with, if prices do not collapse and reduce this supply coming out in U.S. and North America, I, I calculated as of next year, the surplus of liquid fuel production over consumption in U.S. and Canada will cover the full everything, the, the full amount of the SPR, which is around 400 million barrels, in about a year, actually less. Um, that's just the surplus if we don't export it. So this is a situation that's changed drastically. This is a new world order. That's part of the reason I pointed out months ago why the U.S. is one of the best places to benefit from this major unfortunate war and energy crisis, because not only do we have a major excess of energy, and it's more so every day, we are the world's largest producer and exporter of agriculture and grain. I want to talk about something that may be related to this because the rest of the world is importing oil. They're importing oil. They got problems in Europe and Japan. And in order to buy that oil, Mike, they have to get dollars. And one of the stories I've been reading is that they're selling off their treasuries to get dollars to pay for this oil, which is impacting the treasury market. Any thoughts there? Yes, that's part of the lose-lose, I think, for the rest of the world, for commodities, for the global economy, um, as the Fed catches up. Um, and I think it's going to be part of the major opportunity in treasuries, because we all know there's been a elongated downward yield trend in treasuries. And yes, we're getting a pretty significant spike. But if you look forward, what I see, Jim, is an, a resumption of a very significant deflationary environment, which was the case before COVID. But the difference then was the Fed was too e was much more easy. That's never going to happen. The Fed will not ease now until they really have to. They're not going to ease for just little things. So to me, this is part of the short-term pain. It's part of what's tilting the world towards global recession, which we see, and I have a we have a Bloomberg economics tracker that tilted towards global recession in July. But it's also part of, to me, this unique inflection point, which I call it like 1929. We are heading towards a recession globally, which is clearly the case, and the most central banks on the planet are tightening. People are selling treasuries, but generally they're going to return to the rightful owners and um I fully expect there'll be a pretty significant bond bull market in price to come out of this. But right now we're still in that pain stage. And it's going to have an inflection point. I just don't know when. I'm afraid it's going to take a weaker stock market. And let's move on to another commodity. If, Mike, you would have told me we would have seen the highest inflation in four decades, that gold would drop 15 to 20%, I would have told you you're crazy. But that's exactly what's happened. So, Tell me what you think about gold here. Gold has made new highs in terms of most other currencies, most notably the euro and the yen and the significant major currencies on the planet. So it's we're talking about gold in terms of dollars, around $1,600 an ounce. I view gold as very attractive, building a solid base and very low at these prices. Now, I have been wrong on gold. I admit that, but I fully expect gold to come out ahead. It's doing similar to what it did in 2008. The significance is we have the, 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 mo the greatest amount of Federal Reserve, the most, the highest velocity of Federal Reserve tightening in, you know, in, in 40 years. Yes, that's a pressure factor for gold. Um, but I fully expect it's going to come out ahead, particularly as we head to a more enduring deflationary environment. And again, the key thing to remember about gold, it's doing exactly what it's supposed to do in terms of, prote of protecting yourself from currency debasement. 
And you look at dollar index here, it's up over 20%. So it's massive dollar strength that's been pressuring gold. But if you're in any other part of the world, if you're in Europe or in Japan, you've been happy with that diversification you're getting from your gold. It's just the U.S. situation right now. But to me, that's part of the stress that's hitting the system, Jim, from the Fed. So things are breaking significantly in the Fed. It just hasn't kicked in yet, but it will. Um, and one thing I want to mention is money supply. The global measure of money supply I have on a Bloomberg terminal, it's dropped to down 5% on an annual basis. It's never dropped that much. And for comparison, the last time I had a really solid plunge was it dropped to near zero in 2008 and nine. And then we all know what happened to gold after that and what happened to the economy. And what do you think happens, Mike, once at some point the Fed will either pause or pivot? We don't know. Of course, we're going to have to wait to see what happens to inflation. But if your deflationary scenario that you are thinking may play out, what happens to gold at that point? Well, Jim, you nailed it. That's what the market's looking for, that inflection point. Now, we've had a few false alarms, but now we're at the point where the Fed, I think, um, for rightly so, swung the pendulum of, of too much liquidity way too far. Remember, we were heading towards a pretty severe global um, pandemic, but it was a plague. I mean, it was serious. We got vaccines, and now they're taking away that punch bowl at the greatest pace ever. The key thing is they will not be easing ever as much as they have in the past because we've learned that lesson. So as we were speaking, I pulled up the Fed fund rate a year from now. It's the, uh, I just like Fed fund futures. Right now, it's about 4.5%. Now, that's been pretty extreme from the beginning year. The one year out Fed funds was closer to 1%. So that's job drop. Once you see that one year forward dropping, that's the bottom. But I think that's going to take something to break. And right now, I think the number one trigger is the stock market going down. Commodities are already doing it. Crude oil continue to do what I think it's going to do, like copper, show those deflationary trends kicking in. The Fed to ease back, but for the Fed to start easing is going to be different. To stop tightening, to stop the jawboning, that's number one. We all know that that takes, sometimes it just takes one day, a little bit of inflection. Say you one day you get the stock market down 8%, maybe 10%. It'll happen, just a matter of time. And all my data shows this is worse than 2008 for commodities and risk assets. So if you were to look at the commodity sector, uh, would you be moving more towards a deflationary type setup in assets versus, let's say, um, hard assets? Yes. Well, deflation, and that's a key thing, remember, about commodities, the price of the three top commodities on the planet, crude oil, copper, and corn, they represent the major sectors. On a 10-year basis, they're down about 15%. That's deflation. Just think of every one of those producers on a 10-year basis. Their costs haven't gone down. Some of them have because of technology, but that's deflation. That process is accelerating now because what we just did is the Fed broke that umbilical cord of every time risk assets went down, they were there to save us. Done. That's over. It's gone. It's not going to happen until something's really serious. Maybe an 87 crash happens. They've learned that lesson. We've all learned that as traders in human nature and humanity. So what I see is to remind people commodities are mean reverting assets. They don't appreciate over time. They depreciate over time. I just mentioned three of them. That's only 10 years. And the forces now, I think, are more powerful than ever. Rapidly advancing technologies, replacing petroleum with technology. Copper is probably the one on ones to stay in there because everything needs copper. But it's reflecting the global, you know, Dr. Copper, that global tilt towards recession at the moment. You have things like corn. I own a farm. I used to own a farm. We can create more of it with less every day. I'll just end with this. The average corn yield this year is going to be a probably double what it was when we had the great grain embargo in 1972-73 when the Soviet Union bought a lot of grain because of drought issues. Um, so that's the key thing to remember about commodities. The producers are where to go. Because producers make money. When they make money, they pr produce more, pressure prices, but typically they make profit. So typically that's what I like to suggest. And then there's things like gold, which is always a good part of a portfolio. But and one thing about gold is because of rapidly advancing technology, it's hard to gold hold gold anymore without some Bitcoin in that bucket because it's becoming the digital version of the old guard metal. And, you know, I was going to ask that because one of the things that we saw influence the commodity markets were the introduction of ETFs in the OO decade. So you got GLD, you got SLV. Suddenly, investors didn't have to go into a coin shop. They could get on their laptop, press a button, and boom, own gold. It became that simple. And it influenced the markets in that way because we had an outlet 
uh, not just looking at the stocks. What influence do you think the cryptocurrencies have had on gold as a safe haven? That is a good point. I like to ask the question. I have a bunch of children um, and I know a bunch of, you know, around millennials and they don't care about gold. They care about cryptos and that's what they look to buy on dips. So I think the new generation doesn't care. That's for, you know, the uh, OK boomers. <laughs> <laughs> it's just what I've heard. Um, and that's the key thing. That's where things are going in the future. But also you mentioned ETFs. What's happening is there's still not a simple way for institutions to properly allocate towards cryptos. And I think what's happened now, there's a few things. There's ETFs have come in the space. They're not really in the U.S. that can really track the actual crypto. But my idea, my, my base case for when this whole space reaches a bit of a plateau from broad-based um, institutional exposure and everybody's exposure is when there's a widely disseminated ETFs that track a broad index, like a Bloomberg Galaxy Crypto Index. I say that because that's the reason we launched that index four years ago, because anticipating where this space is going. So right now it's still new in nascent days, but Jim, I tell you, I get the calls and the requests every day from institution clients. Mike, it would talk more about cryptos. And a lot of it's from demand pull trickle up. And just I'll leave you with this. Just the other day, I met with the new head of digital assets for MasterCard, now based in Miami. Two years ago, that statement would have been an oxymoron. Well, listen, Mike, uh, so if you were an investor right now, what would you be doing or where would you be placing money? Because I see eventually either a pause or a pivot. You know, I don't know if it's the end of the year, or the beginning of the year. And I, I would see a major, I think, uh, rally in the bond market. Yeah. So I think what you said, um, Jim, makes a lot of sense. I can't give investment advice, but I fully expect the U.S. Treasury long bond market to go back to that enduring downward yield trend. Um, and it's a question of how much more pain before that long-term gain kicks in. I see the signs and commodities tilting back towards deflationary trends, potentially more excessive than the past. I see the Fed not going to be creating any more inflation, helping the stock market. And I fully expect some of the best performing assets in the next five to 10 years will be things like gold, Bitcoin, and long bonds because of that lower plateau and low inflation. Now, if we get lucky enough in this peak we put in the stock market just about nine months ago doesn't last like the last big one in 2000, which lasted for 13 years, which could happen. That to me is, if we get lucky enough, then things like a Galaxy, a Bloomberg Galaxy crypto index or Ethereum or even Bitcoin, they'll probably outperform equities because they typically do. But I think we all need to focus on at some point, bear markets take money from everybody. That's what's happening. You expect vicious bear market rallies. And in this rally, now we have some of the major institutions after a down 20% in the year coming out to our view, which we had at the beginning of the year, that you don't fight the Fed, pointing out the clients they have to sell equities, which means we'll have responsive sellers on rallies, means that um, the game's over. And this game of the Fed just providing liquidity anytime you want it is over, which means more enduring. We're going to go back to a wonderful world, Jim, get this, where bad news is going to be bad news for stocks and good news is going to be good news for stocks and commodities and things. I'm looking forward to not having to look over to the Fed and say, oh, they're going to ease because stock market is down 20%. That day, those days are over. All right. Well, listen, Mike, as we close, if our listeners would like to follow your work, tell them the easiest way they could do that. Well, thank you, Jim. I'm on LinkedIn. You look at my name under Bloomberg, Mike McGlone, and I'm on Twitter, Mike McGlone 11 on LinkedIn. If you reach out, I'm happy to add to my distribution list. And I thank you for having me because I think you and I are helping uh, help investors um, save some money in this tough environment. All right. All the best. Stay safe and stay away from that hurricane. Yes, sir. Thank you. Welcome, everyone, to this week's edition of the Smart Macro segment, where, as always, we speak with our chief investment officer here at Financial Sense Wealth Management, Chris Paplava. So, Chris, one of the things that we've been discussing in our prior conversations here in this segment is how we are near a breaking point when you look at the spike in interest rates, which is starting to have some collateral damage, and that the Fed may start to see some pressure from the consequences of this. What is it that you're seeing along these lines? You're absolutely right, Chris. You know, it, you, you can't have... The world's largest central bank, which is the U.S. Fed, have such an aggressive policy while you have economic weakness in other major developed areas, such as obviously Europe, the U.K., and Japan. They're all reeling from the energy crisis, and it's it's certainly impacting the currencies. You know, as an example of this, Chris, just year to date, 
looking through today, we see some huge losses in currencies relative to the dollar. Um, you know, obviously some of them, such as emerging market, they're down pretty big. Like the Argentine peso is down 30% over the last uh, nine months. The Turkish lira is down 28. But when we get to developed currencies, those are also down sizably as well. The Japanese yen just this year is down 20.5% to the dollar. The Norwegian krone is down 19%. The Swedish kroner is down 18.5%. The New Zealand dollar is down 18%. The British pound down 17.5%. The South Korean won down 17 The euro down nearly 14%. The Danish kroner also down nearly 14%. But you can see when looking at the developed countries, you're seeing very sizable declines in those currencies relative to the dollar. And the problem is when those foreign currencies witness sizable declines, you do sometimes get central bank intervention, and that involves selling other foreign currencies to buy your own. And so, for example, when we look at the Japanese currency and we look at its drawdown over the last two to three years, so a maximum decline from a recent high, this is coming down now, Chris, as the fourth largest decline in the Japanese yen in a half century. This is a very sizable and large decline. Uh, so we're about roughly from the high, we're down about 29% in the yen relative to the dollar. Now, to give you some comparisons, the Asian currency crisis of 1997, the yen was down 36% at its worst relative to the dollar from a high. So we're not that far off, but it's not just Japan. We have to also pay attention to uh, China because Japan and China are the largest foreign owners of U.S. debt. So I just discussed Japan, which is currently the largest debt holder. They've got $1.2 trillion in U.S. Uh, government debt. Uh, China is second behind them at $970 billion. But when we look at the Chinese yuan, this is a sizable deterioration in the Chinese currency relative to the dollar in a very short time. Now, what we've noticed, Chris, when we enter the start of this year and you look at the amount of holdings that China had in U.S. debt, China was roughly around $1.1 trillion going into the start of this year. They're now down to $970 billion. So they're down more than $100 billion in U.S. treasuries just this year alone. And I believe part of that is to basically sell U.S. securities to free up dollars to then buy the yuan to stabilize it. Now, it's not just China. When we look at Japan, when we started the year, Japan was just shy of around $1.3 trillion in U.S. debt. They're now down to $1.2 trillion. So Japan also has seen a $100 billion decline in the amount of uh, U.S. treasuries that they hold outstanding. So now bear in mind, Chris, that a lot of these countries, they basically pour back their trade surpluses into the U.S. dollar and in particular U.S. government securities to prevent their currencies from appreciating so that they don't have a hit to their exports. They want strong exports, which means a weak currency. They just don't want it this week, uh, which is what we're seeing. And so what we're seeing is that the major buyers of U.S. debt, Japan, China, and other countries, they're not just not buying, but some of them are conceivably selling. We don't know how much is them rolling off their balance sheet, kind of like the Fed is, letting securities mature and then uh, repatriating that back into their home currency. But you can clearly see that those major buyers are not buying, and it could conceivably possibly be selling. Currently, the U.S. Federal Reserve owns $5.6 trillion of U.S. debt. So it is heads above all the other foreign holders of U.S. debt by a sizable margin, they are now selling or letting their debt roll off. So the largest buyer of U.S. debt is gone. The next largest buyers of debt, Japan and China, are gone. Who's left to buy U.S. debt? So this is the point, Chris, that I think we're basically at the beginning of the end where essentially the we're going to see one central bank after another basically have to start propping up its market as the stress is getting too much and that will come home and hurt the US in terms of volatility in terms of possibly higher rates 
and pressure on the U.S. to stop raising rates so aggressively. Uh, if the U.S. was just a small central bank, small country that really didn't impact everyone, we could raise interest rates and not impact the rest of the world. But the bulk of global trade is transacted in dollars. And so a very strong dollar and a strong Fed policy is creating ripples through the whole global economy and financial markets that are ultimately starting to come back and hit U.S. markets. So there's a number of ripple effects that are coming from the big moves that we've seen both in interest rates and now in the dollar as well. So this is, the, I guess the main message here is that there's increasing stress globally. And the thinking is that we're likely to see more central banks start to have to respond to this stress, like we saw with the Bank of England this week, which announced some type of emergency quantitative easing. Is, is that a fair characterization of the events that are underway? It is. You know, you mentioned that the pace of the rise in interest rates has been aggressive, which it has. And to give you an example of that, when we entered September, when you look at the euro dollar futures market, which is basically the pricing of future Fed funds rates, the market was pricing in a terminal Fed funds rate of 4% next year. So that was literally one month ago. And as of, uh, let's say, uh, September 23rd, that had jumped to nearly 5%. That's a 25% increase in the expected terminal Fed funds rate in literally less than a month. That has since come down a bit to about 4.7, but that's still 71 basis points higher than where we were entering this month. So clearly it's not just Chris the pace, but I mean, even the level. And, and that's the problem. And I think we're getting to Chris is, you know, you look at these high interest rates, some of the highest rates we have had in a lot of the developed world in quite some time, you basically have to go back 10 years to find rates this high. Now imagine how much debt all these countries had 10 years ago, obviously a lot lower than where we are today. And this I think is creating issues for the whole world. For example, you know, think about Italy and the massive amounts of debt that they have. They're basically looking at a 10-year interest rate of around 4.5%. You've got the UK at 4. You've got uh, Canada. You know, They're a little bit lower. They're around 3.2. But you've got a lot of the world uh, really starting to see a spike in interest rates that is certainly going to hurt them going forward. So, Chris, that's the macro situation as you've defined it now at this point. A lot of concerns in what we see with both the bond markets, globally, currency markets, and the financial stress that is building. How does this translate to you in terms of the market outlook? Because a lot of people are saying now, hey, look at investor sentiment. It's as low or as negative as it was in March of 2009, the bottom of the major stock market um, crash that we saw in, in 2009, and that, you know, we're set up for some type of year-end rally, just given how stretched things have gotten to the downside. Um, that was something that actually that Ari Wald discussed uh, earlier on the show, is that you know there's blood on the streets at this point. You should be buying when there's blood on the streets. So how do some of these concerns translate, in your mind, to the more shorter-term outlook? When I, when I look at market breadth, I am seeing some drying up of selling pressure, meaning less stocks are participating to the downside as the market is hitting new lows. So I think a lot of that, Chris, has to do with the market now really going after the generals. That's the big heavy cap tech companies who have a sizable weight in the indices are falling. And so I think those are putting pressure on the overall index. But I think you're starting to see other stocks holding up, meaning not hitting new lows. And so the, the fact that we're starting to see some drying up of selling pressure. So we're essentially, we're seeing you know, a really oversold market. Sentiment is getting very extreme. I do think, Chris, we're setting up for a bounce. And it could just be one comment. Um, kind of what, what I think you're going to see transition is basically a progressively less hawkish Fed. So if you remember the last rate hike cycle, the Fed uh, raised rates in December of 2018, the last rate hike of the year ended up being the last rate hike of that cycle. And they basically said the balance sheet uh, was going to be uh, declining on autopilot and happened in the background. So the Fed thought it was a non-event shrinking its balance sheet. The market thought otherwise, falling roughly 10% thereafter in short order. And finally, the Fed in January, after seeing the debt um, U.S. junk uh, high-yield market freeze, that caught the attention of the Fed. We started to have some issues in the U.S. financial plumbing system. 
the Fed was done raising rates and they basically flipped to saying that the Fed would do whatever it takes and use all the tools at its disposal to stabilize financial markets. The economy kept weakening. Six months later, the Fed was cutting interest rates. Three months later after that, the Fed was printing money again with the repo crisis. So we kind of had a progressive transition from a very hawkish Fed to a more dovish Fed. And I think that's what we're going to start to see is that, you know, as at the, at the end of the last meeting, the Fed was basically kind of projecting where they see their uh, the Fed funds rate. And they were basically targeting an additional 125 basis point move by the end of the year. So that means 75 basis points in November, 50 in December, and then only one more rate hike next year of 25 basis points, conceivably at one of the early meetings in 2023. I don't think they're going to get there. I really don't. I think there's going to be too much stress. The Fed is going way too fast. And as Jeff Gonluck and others have mentioned, the Fed hasn't even given themselves time to see what their tightening has already done and how that's going to transition into the economy with the lag. So they've done a tremendous amount of tightening. In my opinion, I think they're being impatient in terms of letting that take effect. And so I think we're going to see some more instability in the markets that causes the Fed to start to ratchet it down their aggressive comments, where it could, you know, uh, very conceivably see the Fed ratchet down, where instead of doing 75 in November, they do 50 and possibly then just 25 in December. So a little bit less. And then possibly next year, if the economy uh, continues to deteriorate, financial markets are in turmoil, the Fed may abandon its rate hikes altogether and then start talking about using tools to stabilize markets. So I, I do think we're getting to the end of this tightening cycle because essentially the Fed is pushing, and it always does, the Fed pushes until something breaks. And while so far we're not seeing things break here in the U.S., we are clearly seeing that start to break across the world. And what happens in the rest of the world impacts us indirectly, as I mentioned, by foreign governments or central banks selling U.S. securities to prop up their own currency. I think we're going to continue to see more of that as long as the Fed is on this extremely aggressive tightening campaign. And I think the Fed will realize that they simply cannot do what they think they'll do. And that's happened time and time again. We've already seen the forecasting ability of the Fed is quite poor. Uh, I mean, just last year, you know, you and I, Chris, discussed um, ad nauseum the uh, amount of, you know, ridiculousness of the idea that inflation would be transitory. Uh, that was a huge policy blunder. I think, Chris, the Fed is making another policy blunder by going too fast in terms of the rate hikes. That inflation will naturally moderate from here. Uh, certainly based on their tightening as well as the tightening done by the financial markets in terms of long-term interest rates. We're already seeing that in housing. Housing is an early indicator. So the Fed hasn't given that time to spill over into the other areas of the economy, which I think is coming. And ultimately, I think will prevent the Fed from hiking as much as they think they will. Well, and a really interesting thing that just happened today was we saw the core PCE measure come out uh, at 4.9%. So it's higher than expected. It beat it, it beat expectations. And this is the inflation index that is widely watched and looked to by the Federal Reserve. Uh, it's their sticky component, you know, where they exclude energy and they exclude food, looking at the more longer term uh, trending factors for inflation that they believe uh, should determine or dictate what their Fed policy is. And with this higher than expected number, uh, you would think that, well, the Fed is going to remain more aggressive and, and continue with their hawkish stance. But if you look at the uh, at least the Fed Funds futures market on CME Group website, uh, interestingly enough, the probability for a rate hike at their November meeting only went up 0.6%. So we're at a 53.8% probability in the Fed Funds futures market for a 75 basis point hike at the November meeting. And that's actually down sharply from a week ago where it was as high as 73%. So even with this sticky inflation measure coming out today, the Fed futures market, that is investors, are actually pricing in lower probability for the Fed to maintain their hawkish posture, which seems to indicate that like we're talking today, there's a wider set of concerns now that are brewing outside when you look at the turbulence that we're seeing in the currency markets, in the bond market, and that we could be at a breaking point 
And again, as you said, you know, the Bank of England having to launch some emergency quantitative easing to support the damage that they're seeing in their own currency could be a sign that we're in the beginning stages of that process. Uh, you know, I would agree with that, Chris, because again, what the Fed does impacts the whole world, which then comes back and uh, hurts the U.S. in terms of higher rates and a selling of U.S. securities. Uh, when you look at the Treasury International Capital Flows, uh, back in July, I believe the latest report was for July, we saw hundreds of billions of dollars being sold of U.S. securities, so equities, corporate you know, bonds, U.S. government bonds. And uh, I think a lot of that was a dash for, for U.S. dollar cash to then uh, basically support and stabilize their own currency. So the more the Fed keeps doing this, the more it's going to ultimately come back to hurt us, where if we see such a a destabilization in financial markets, the Fed might have to intervene. And we're, we're really starting to see that, Chris. You look at, for example, the uh, Bank of, I'm sorry, when you look at the uh, Bank of America Merrill Lynch move index, which basically is the VIX for the US government bond market, we're basically almost at the levels we saw it in March of 2020. I mean, think about that for a second. We're seeing sizable volatility in government bond markets. When you look at Equivalent VIXs for currencies, we're seeing uh, severe levels of stress in the currency markets, the bond market. Uh, we're not seeing high, high levels in the VIX, which is the measure used for the S&P uh, volatility. But I think part of that, Chris, could be that so many market participants are hedging their risk. And so uh, you might not see the fear premium there, but you're certainly seeing the debt markets in the currency markets, which are bigger than the equity markets. So uh, we are really starting to see stress levels get to a point where we are at that breaking point. We're already seeing some of the dams break across the seas. And I think the more dams that break, ultimately, we're going to see that break here in the U.S., where I have to imagine, Chris, the various central bankers of the world are on the phone talking with Powell and saying, look, you're killing us. you got to give us you know, some room to breathe here. So I do think there's going to be more and more global pressure on the Fed to start to calm the amount of hikes that it has and to pull back a bit in terms of uh, the pace of its tightening. Now, as you and I are speaking, the S&P is broken below 3,600. We are now below the June lows that we saw before the major bear market rally that we saw over the summer. So that's concerning. On a technical basis, we have now broken to a new low. Some other guests we've had on FS Insider have said, you know, we probably want to be looking at around the 3,400, 3,600 level. We're right in that range now, perhaps with a minimum downside target uh, around 3,400. Again, investor sentiment is extremely bearish right now. It's at the lows that we haven't seen since the 2009 lows or even in 2020, like you said, with the COVID lockdowns. So we are seeing, when you look at investor sentiment, when you look at positioning, technical conditions set up for some type of bottom, given how oversold things are. The only concern is that whether or not we are getting toward that breaking point, and we do see some sort of dislocation in the markets or the economy. So perhaps that's something that we're going to end up really seeing over the next several weeks into October. October tends to be a time in which we see the stock market hit a major bottom and 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 see crashes. So perhaps over the next few weeks, things are going to get dicey. Um, the thinking that's been espoused on FS Insider is that it's going to be before we see this next CPI print coming out October 13th that will come in on the downside. That will finally give the Fed a little bit more relief or perhaps uh, give investors a bit more of a, a pause to think that, hey, we're starting to see inflation lower and that could lead to potentially a year-end rally. So those are some of the, uh, the situations and outcomes that we're looking at. Um, any thoughts when you think about you know how things could proceed for the next few weeks or months? I think we really are, Chris, getting to a point that the market is significantly oversold. And with sentiment as bearish as it is, it really won't take much of a small incremental positive change to see the markets rally. Now, you know whether that's sustainable, I don't think so. But we could still be treated with a very powerful rally. If you remember, we had a pretty decent, you know, roughly 20% rally this summer. You go back to the spring of 2008, in the midst of recession, we still had a pretty sizable rally as we had a little bit of an uptick in economic data that uh, was supportive for risk assets. And I, I would, you know, think that's very conceivable is that we could see a decent fourth quarter rally. 
as it looks like central bankers are getting closer and closer to the end of this global tightening cycle uh, that could lift it. And then the question is, what kind of economic deterioration do we see in 23? If it's sizable, if we have a global recession and or U.S. recession, then we could see a return to new lows after a decent relief rally or possibly below that. But, you know, again, with how quickly markets are moving, I think that's, you know, even looking out three months is uh, it's going to be pretty cloudy. And as we've been discussing as well with you, the leading economic indicators, many of our long leading economic indicators are still turning down. So the outlook is still for the primary trend lower, which is why we've been defensively positioned ever since late last year. Uh, So that continues. However, we are seeing short term conditions for a potential rally. But that is unlikely to be sustained unless we see a bottoming and uptick in the LEIs, which we do not see yet. You're correct, Chris, because if you think about it, what the Fed is doing right now will not fully impact the economy for at least a year. And so given the Fed is not even at a peak uh, Fed rate hike yet, then you, it's conceivable that even the hike that they did this month will not really play out until nine to 12 months from now. So I do think that even if we get a temporary reprieve in economic data, and we're already kind of seeing that in jobless claims, those have been coming down. Um, you know, personal income came in a surprise to the upside. Then, um, you know, I do think that any reprieve will be short-lived. And then ultimately we're going to be heading lower next year, given that we haven't even given time for the full effect of the Fed's tightening to play into the economy. That concludes our weekend edition of the Financial Sense News Hour. To speak with our financial planning and wealth management team, give us a call at 888-488-486-3939 or go to financialsense.com and click where it says contact us. If you aren't already a subscriber to our weekday podcast and would like to listen to more of our content where we regularly interview book authors, industry experts, and strategists from around the globe, go to Financial Sense and hit the subscribe button. On behalf of Financial Sense NewsHour and the Financial Sense Wealth Management Team, we hope you have a pleasant weekend. The Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any companies mentioned in financial sense or arising out of the use of any material on the news hour be advised that you invest at your own risk